Hello, and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Ms. Amy Cron and Dr. Jeannie Callum, both from the Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center. They will be discussing their recent work, a prospective multifaceted interventional study of blood bank technologist screening of red blood cell transfusion orders, the START study. Welcome, Amy and Jeannie. Thank you for joining us. Amy, would you please introduce yourself? Hi, so I'm Amy, and I am a clinical research coordinator at Sunnybrook. So I work for the Quest Research Group and am just coordinating the projects, um, focusing on the you know utilization and safety of blood products. Thank you. And Jeannie, can you introduce yourself for us? Hi there. I'm Jeannie Callum, and I'm a transfusion medicine physician and an adult hematologist, and I am Director of Transfusion Medicine at Kingston Health Science Center and a professor of medicine at uh, Queen's University. Well, thank you both for joining us. This is a great paper. Um, Can you summarize your study for our listeners? Our our goal was to improve the appropriateness of uh, red blood cell transfusions across uh, 15 hospitals in Canada. So we'd done some work at academic hospitals and we could show we could really improve the appropriateness of transfusions. And then we've done some work at community hospitals, just a couple of them, but with transfusion medicine academic backup to these technologists, and we could improve uh, transfusion practice. So this was kind of the next step. Could we take an intervention where technologists are screening blood at non-academic hospitals without a, you know, a trained transfusion medicine specialist that dedicated all of their time to transfusion medicine to back them up? Uh, to see if we could still get the intervention to work. And we chose hospitals that had, you know, on the higher end of utilization, the metric that we use is number of red cells per 100 acute inpatient days. So targeting people that are in that at least plus four, plus five, six, seven, eight, um, for a community hospital is a pretty high number. And then seeing whether or not we could get that same intervention that we got to work in academic hospitals to work in community hospitals. And it worked. In the intervention, did the technologist call for double unit transfusions or just when a transfusion didn't meet the threshold of hemoglobin or both? Yeah, so the um, technologists uh, were trained with, you know, baseline education and with uh, an SOP. And the uh, training required them to look at, you know, what was the particulars about the patient? What kind of symptoms did they have? What was, did they have cardiac history or not? Were they bleeding? Um, And what was the order? What was the dose? What was the hemoglobin? And based on that, and based on the SOP, it got flagged. And the first thing they would do is they would go back to the doctor and say, hey, it looks like this transfusion is outside of guidelines. but maybe you know something more about this patient to tell me it's within the guidelines and sometimes it could just be resolved with the physician and you know they would cancel the transfusion or provide more information oh the patient's massively bleeding okay fine the the blood unit goes out um but if there was some disagreement where it couldn't be resolved at the tech to ordering physician level it got escalated to the champion at the local site to resolve so really they they went after the dose and they went after triggering it too high of a threshold in an asymptomatic patient where people were only transfusing for the number. You mentioned that you identified hospitals that had higher utilizations than similar hospitals in the area. 
Uh, was it difficult to get buy-in from these hospitals to join this study, or were most people pretty easily um, convinced to join in this intervention? Okay, that's a great question because we actually tried to get more hospitals to participate, um, and particularly some hospitals that were on the highest end of that metric of red cells per 100 acute inpatient days that we track by the Ministry of Health for the whole province of Ontario. Um, but some of the top users were not ready to buy in, um, didn't have a local champion, uh, had other priorities for their lab. You know, sometimes it's really hard, you know, these offers to participate in a study come at a bad time when you're upgrading your LIS, you're bringing in new instrumentation, you're implementing a new irradiator, whatever. Um, so, but there were some hospitals that were reluctant to participate. And I just wanted to add that there was, um, you know, before we moved into the intervention, we did administer a feasibility survey just to see, you know, what would be the barriers of facilitators to implementing such an intervention. So here at my hospital, we've been doing this, what we call prospective review for years where uh, the technologist flag orders and it goes to the resident fellow or attending to call the provider or look into the order. And I know when I first got here, I was terrified about being just the gatekeeper or the blood police and having people react poorly to my phone calls. And most people don't. I was interested what training your technologists got and who your local champions were and how you identified them. Yeah. So the uh, training was uh, pretty basic. So we had one of our champions within our Quest research group, Jacob Pendergrass, record a, a pretty simple PowerPoint presentation on how to screen orders they had a basic SOP for training. Um, and then uh, at some of the sites where it was necessary, we did some like almost role playing of how you would ask that. And I think one of the techniques to having a chat with one of the ordering physicians is not to let them get their back up and say, hey, I'm the transfusion medicine specialist. So I'm just calling because we got this order for blood. And I just want to make sure we're doing the right thing for the patient. And you started off on this kind of, hey, we're on the same team. Let's just do the right thing for the patient. We want to make sure this patient's getting the best possible care. Um, and uh, one of the other things that we um, did to try and make this um, successful is in the intervention lead up to the first, that post 10 month screening, we did a month where we just screened nine to five, Monday to Friday, not in the middle of the night. Um, because most of the time you're going to find the doctors that are a little bit more reluctant to transfuse at restrictive thresholds during that time period. So you can kind of sit down and that champion locally can have a chat with them. And the second thing that we did is we didn't screen orders for bleeding patients, patients in the operating room. Um, so we could only really screen prospectively people that were just really getting top up transfusions without any symptoms. So after the first interventions, um, the tech started screening 24-7. Um, were the champions always available or did the techs handle these calls on their own? And how did that go? Yeah, so the techs were, you know, the front line screening. But then after that, uh, phone calls through the night. And that's how we function at all of our uh, uh, centers within our Quest group is that every order for blood is screened for right timing, right patient, right indication and right dose. And that covers it 24 seven. And you asked uh, before you asked just about the, you know, how did we pick these champions? So these champions, uh, part of the feasibility survey is 
could you identify a, a local champion that would be willing uh, to step up to the plate? Um, and they had a lot of coaching from myself and other members of our quest team as they, you know, for the first month, the first two months, when they felt a little bit nervous about their own transfusion medicine knowledge, we did a lot of educating of that champion. So it's kind of like almost like a train the trainer that you would do in the lab. So were these trainers, you, you made the point in the paper that they often weren't transfusion medicine specialists. Were they hematologists, hospitalists, or just a little bit of everything? They were almost exclusively uh, like general pathologists, clinical pathologists, uh, not transfusion medicine specialists, and uh, not usually a hematologist. So most of them were just your, you know, people that are assigned at the local community hospital. They're a pathologist, and on the side of their desk, they're doing a bit of the transfusion medicine. So how did the providers caring for the patients respond to these calls? You said that you had worked with the technologists to, like you said, not let them get their back, the providers get their backs up. Um, how did it go? And what did the techs do if the providers still wanted the unit after they explained that it didn't meet the threshold and or that they recommended one versus two? If they still met resistance, what did the technologists do at that point? Yeah, so I don't think uh, we saw a lot of resistance. Um, you know, this is uh, Canada. We tend to be super polite. Uh, so that goes, you know, usually pretty well. I would say at every site, you know, the local champion called me and said, okay, I've got this particular problem with this particular doctor where he wants this kind of transfusion practice. Can you give me some evidence that maybe in this situation they don't need the transfusion so I can somehow rebuttal his argument? And that happened for the first month or two months. Um, and so essentially, definitely these local champions needed some coaching uh, because their transfusion medicine knowledge isn't as deep, say, as a transfusion medicine specialist that, that's going to ABB every year and other scientific meetings, you know, reading their transfusion back to back, cover to cover. I love that you threw in the Canada thing. That's exactly what I thought when I read this paper was, well, they're Canadian. They're probably way nicer than we are. <laughs> <laughs> So, yes, I, and we have the same experience where most of the time people are very understanding and are wanting to do the right thing for their patient. Um, but we occasionally will run into people who are like, no, I know my patient needs this unit of blood when the evidence doesn't support that. So I was interested in how you guys handled it. You know, we started prospective screening at our, you know, base hospital at Sunnybrook in maybe 2005. So really early, you know, before a lot of clinical trials had come out and Boy, did we get a lot of backs up uh, when we tried to start it. Eventually, it calmed down and everybody was happy with it. Um, so when we did it, you know, you know, this time, there's so many more randomized control trials, systematic reviews. There's so much more evidence that it's really hard for someone to have a strong opinion that their patient needs a hemoglobin of 9, 10, and they need to get two units. So I think implementing prospective screening in 2021 is going to be a lot easier than it was for us in 2005. What were the transfusion triggers or thresholds that you set for this um, intervention? So in a patient who doesn't have any cardiac disease, isn't actively bleeding, um, it's not symptomatic, we use a threshold of 70. In a patient with known cardiac disease, we use a threshold of 80. I'm not saying that 80 is the right threshold, um, uh, but we wouldn't argue if it was below 80. Some people would say, you know, the best target for a cardiac patient would be 70 or 75, um, but we weren't going to argue if it was below 80. 
Um, if the patient was symptomatic, and symptomatic not just they're tired, but symptomatic, they're tachycardic, they're presyncable, they're syncable, they're having chest pain. Um, and then uh, those were the, for the screening criteria and obviously single unit. Um, and then when we did our auditing, we also had audit criteria for a bleeding patient and we divided bleeding patients into, you know, what was the target before and after hemoglobins that would be acceptable that that patient wasn't overtransfused during the resuscitation. And, you know, if it was, say, a patient without cardiac disease, as long as they kept the hemoglobin between 70 to 90, if they had known cardiac disease, you know, 80 to 100 during that resuscitation, if it was a massive hemorrhage, as long as, you know, they weren't transfusing that patient over 100, we deemed it was okay. Um, and I think you could argue about those criteria, but they were really a kind of a general, and we use the same criteria before and after. Uh, so it makes it a little bit more valid because we're comparing apples to apples. Why were patients with asymptomatic anemia at such increased risk of inappropriate transfusions? And what intervention, in addition to uh, for provider education, can help drive this risk down? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the problem is we have a lot of physicians and a lot of nurses who are so used to transfusing for that hemoglobin of eight. And even if they've come down from two units to one unit, they're really stuck on that hemoglobin of eight. And um, so it's really difficult to get them driving the, the pre-transfusion hemoglobin down. Um, and I think it's just gonna take a lot of work on every single transfusion medicine specialist across the planet to ever so slowly drive that number down so that as each new doctor comes off the assembly line and starts practicing, they're with a restrictive uh, strategy. Um, you know, one of the things that I was really impressed with this study that we, that we showed was um, we were monitoring pre-transfusion hemoglobins, and we got that to drop a little bit so that a greater number of patients had a hemoglobin pre-transfusion less than 70 and less than 80 from the before to after. But actually, it was the post-transfusion hemoglobin that really dropped. So because they were, you know, triggering at a lower hemoglobin and then only given one unit, um, you could really see the difference in the transfusion practice coming out in that post-transfusion hemoglobin. And we've been so focused on the pre in most of the studies that I think we've lost touch with, hey, we also have to bring the post down to know that we're kind of reaching our target and controlling inappropriate use of red cells. How can transfusion specialists help foster a culture supportive of a restrictive transfusion threshold? without being seen as the gatekeepers of the blood? Yeah, so, um, you know, when we initially started, say, in 2005, with starting to screen transfusion orders, you know, we started for red cells, platelets, plasma, all the products. Um, we got, you know, initially some pushback, you know, who are you to question our orders? But then as the physician saw that their patients were doing just as well without transfusion, um, we got really good buy-in from our staff physicians, even a, a lot of our older physicians that have been used to transfusing, you know, two units below a hundred. Um, to the point that it got to the point that when we failed to screen, so say a tech just, you know, said, oh, you know, for whatever reason, they didn't screen a unit and out went a unit. I would start getting phone calls the next day to say, Dr. Callum, your blood bank didn't block an inappropriate transfusion, which is really like turning it completely around. Um, and, you know, basically 
to give feedback to the technologist. I'm sorry, you didn't screen hard enough. And the second thing that happened uh, was on the nursing side. So the nurses were afraid to question some fellow in the intensive care unit on their transfusion order. So they would send the order down to the blood bank, or once they knew it had been entered into the system, they would call the blood bank and say, can you make sure that this transfusion gets blocked because it's inappropriate? They weren't willing to tell the doctor that to their face, but they were willing to snitch on them to make sure someone else blocked the transfusion so the patient got the best possible care. So it starts turning around over time into something that people expect, and they're um, upset if the system doesn't work and we don't block a transfusion that maybe a junior resident ordered. So finally, where do you go from here? You really want to target um, the, the inappropriate use of fresh frozen plasma. For fresh frozen plasma from our audits and digital audits that we do, um, about uh, a third of the plasma looks like it's unnecessary. And most of the patients are getting one or two units. And that's not just isolated to Canada. That's been shown in other audits. I'm not sure why that is. Um, we promote a dose of 15 mils per kilo. Um, but across uh, most of our sites, I would say 75% of the patients are getting um one or two units as adults, which is really just a placebo dose. Well, this has been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. Thanks to Ms. Crom and Dr. Collum for joining us for a great discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusions Monthly Podcast. See you next time.